With me, if you will, in Revelation uh, chapter 17. Same text as last week, Revelation 17. We're going to finish it because we didn't. Revelation 17 and verse 1. This is God's Word. Revelation 17, 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was not and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we have sung this morning, speak to us now. Cause our eyes to see, cause our ears to hear, but more importantly, Lord, take down deeply into our hearts your truth. That we may not just know information, but that we may know you, Jesus. Only you can do this. Through your Spirit's work in us today, we pray. Accomplish this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned, we looked at the first seven verses last week, focusing on the symbol of the prostitute, who we know represents Babylon the Great. 
And we saw how this is a symbol for the world's systems, the world's systems that seduce and lure us into compliance with the beast's desires. And since the beast belongs to Satan, and Satan is the great dragon, the evil one, the conspirer behind all of this, to go along with the system that is Babylon the Great is to comply with the evil one. Additionally, we saw how the allure is often tricky. That's kind of the idea behind allurement. If we think of a snare, that's kind of the point, is to trick the object who gets snared. And this is often how Satan works. And so it's a call to be aware and be alert. In the verses that follow, uh, we see today how John's emphasis begins to shift from the woman that we looked at last week now to the beast. And in doing so, he's tying these two systems together to show how they work, ultimately demonstrating what the evil one's tactics are. And this is important for us to understand because the evil one's at work and we need to understand his tactics. But John's point isn't just for us to see this. As he does, and as we've seen the pattern over and over in Revelation, he always weaves hope into the message. He's writing to give us hope that judgment is coming, to fall upon the evil one systems that have worked havoc, that have brought destruction, and that have made our lives miserable. All of this is coming to an end, and this should give us hope. And so looking now at the end of verse 6, we read that John marveled at the prostitute, And the angel responds to him, why? Why are you doing this? We talked a little bit last week how John possibly was marveling because he was kind of hooked. That is the allurement of the prostitute, that he was intrigued, that he was, in a a sense, interested in what she represented. Um, We don't know that because the text doesn't tell us John's thoughts. But we get a sense of that when we see that he's led into the wilderness And we see that the last time we saw a woman in the wilderness, it was the bride of Christ. Now, some argue that this is to give John a contrast, so that taken into the wilderness, was he he there shown the bride of Christ next to the harlot to, to show the contrast that's possible? But at the very least, what is being portrayed here is that John doesn't know. It's a mystery. And that's why the angel calls it a mystery, and that's why he says to John, I will explain to you what the mystery is. He says in verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Now there are two major approaches to explaining uh, or understanding what the angel's explanation was. The first is that the angel is giving the specifics of who the beast really is in history, who the rulers and the kingdoms are in history. There are those who take that approach. The other one is that John is simply telling uh, who the beast is in terms of its character, who it is in terms of its function throughout the church age, so that readers in any time can see and understand who is a part of the beast system in their own day. And you'll never guess where I land. If you've been with us any time, you kind of know the direction I'm going now with this. I think that the latter explanation is the correct one. Now, those who take the former explanation, I want to say a few things about that. One of the things that becomes challenging is how to attribute, because uh, we have numbers, right? We have the number 7, we have the number 10. Uh, how do we attribute it to the exact rulers? And as you know, there were uh, the, the likelihood the, where most people go with this is the rulers of Rome. 
problem is, is there were more than seven rulers in Rome. And so it becomes subjective. There's not a lot of agreement among those who do take this view as to which rulers it represents. You end up having to leave out some of the lesser known rulers or rulers that didn't rule, rule as long in order to make the numbers work here. If we take the approach, though, that John is describing the nature of the beast, then the explanation fits not only the rulers of Rome in John's day and for the churches in Asia who read this as the letter, but it also fits the church throughout the age, including our own day. In other words, it is a system of the beast that is present throughout history that is at work. I think understanding the symbols and the numbers in Revelation symbolically protect us from manipulating history to try and make the numbers fit literally. Now, it's with this explanation that he begins to zero in now on the beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The beast, of course, is the Antichrist, and we've talked about this some. We're going to get into this in more detail as we move into through, through this chapter and on because he becomes more of a central figure. The Antichrist, as we've said, is a counterfeit. He's a parody of the true Christ. He tries to mimic it. We talked about the whole fake resurrection thing that we saw in Revelation chapter 13. And this is another uh, way of John pointing us to this, describing him as the one who was not, or was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. This is kind of a mockery, in a sense, of Jesus, who was and is and is to come, and how Christ is portrayed that way through Revelation. So in doing this, he's showing this is not God. (laughs) The Antichrist clearly is not God. He's not anything like God. The Antichrist, whoever and whatever this becomes, and specifically, this really goes back to Satan. Uh, Satan is not like God. Satan is a created being. Satan came into existence. Satan is under judgment even now, but will come to a final judgment. And the end, of course, is destruction. And so that is the point here. Now, the is not that's in the middle is pointing to that mortal wound that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. This isn't Satan. It's saying that Satan or the beast are dead right now. Of course, we know better than that. But it, it points to the fact that this was a clear death blow at the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, it changed everything. Satan knew that he died on the cross. And yet, before the end comes, or at the very end, we could say there will be this final uprising that we're beginning to see described here, this rising up from the abyss where Satan mounts this final attack. Again, this is hard for us because we see Satan's work in our own day. We see his power on display, and we think, if if this is the fact now, then what is it really going to be like in the end? This is why I've been arguing for a mounting intensity. We saw the parallel descriptions through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, but with an increasing intensity so that at the end things will get worse. And I think that Revelation hints at this, and this is another one of those. What it will look like exactly, we don't know. Those details are not given. And so when people come and tell you that certain things or certain people or certain countries or certain nations or certain entities, be careful because the Scriptures don't tell us this. But the Scriptures do give us enough to know what it's going to look like. Not exactly, not with great detail. We're walking by faith, not by sight here. But we do have enough understanding to see what's involved first. And this list isn't exhaustive. And there's nothing on this list that's going to surprise you, but this is a good reminder. First, Satan is the father of lies. 
So whatever this attack, this final end period will look like, it will involve deception. It will involve manipulation. That's who Satan is. It's what he does. And so expect to see powers and entities that use deception and manipulation in the end. Secondly, God hates, or rather Satan hates God and hates God's people. And so persecution is going to be expected. There will be an increase in persecution. When Jesus spoke about the end in Matthew 24, he had several, he mentioned several of these things, including this. He said, then they will deliver you up for, to, up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24, verse 9. Third, Satan wants worship or at the very least for people not to worship the one true God. And so it will also involve idolatry in its many forms. Again, Jesus in Matthew 24, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So this final assault that's going to come at the end will lead those who are not believers, those whose names have not been written in the book of life, to marvel at the beast's power and presence. This is what we see in verse 8. In other words, their hope and in a sense their faith, their trust, will be in this power, whether it is political or governmental or cultural or probably some combination of all of that. Now, it's easy to imagine here some kind of one world government, and that's why that's often talked about in the book of Revelation. It's possible that's what it looks like. But again, I think we have to be careful. Um, Yes, it's something universal because all of the world's unbelievers are looking to this, but think of just, just think of how the world has changed in the past hundred years and how different things are and how different rule and power is. Uh, would anyone have expected the power of large technical or, or technology companies a uh, hundred years ago? No, we can't. You couldn't have imagined it because you had no idea. So, what are things going to be like a hundred years from now, five hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries a thousand years from now? We don't know. But whatever it is, it is some kind of universal power that's in place. Um, whatever form it takes, let's leave that up to God. We know that its end is certain, and that is God brings it to judgment. In verse 9, the angel then tells John and us that the wisdom is needed to grasp what he is explaining here. This is, I think, the second time we've seen this in the book of Revelation, the need for wisdom. I think all of us already know that, (laughs) Uh, especially when you read through a chapter like 17 and the one who is and was not and is not and 7 and 8 and 10 and it's also this and it's also that. It's so confusing. Yes, we need wisdom. We know that and we continue to pray for wisdom. Wisdom is not simply knowledge. It's not, not just understanding. That's, those are components of wisdom. Wisdom is rather the skills to take knowledge and understanding and apply them to life. And so the goal here is not simply information about what is to come, but a sense of preparation. Wisdom would help us prepare, not only to see it, to be aware, to understand what's coming, but to be prepared so that whatever comes, we are not overcome by it, that we endure to the end. In other words, wisdom is to give us hope in our lives as we face adversity. 
Kistemacher and Hendrickson write that in this context, applied wisdom is not a study of history, politics, and geography to clarify which king was in power, under what circumstances, and where he ruled. Instead, John's apocalypse must be understood theologically. For the writer depicts a reality that comprises all rulers and their times. The symbolism that characterizes the entire book is also pertinent here. In this chapter, notice where the woman sits. On the many waters in verses 1 and 15. On the beast in verse 3. And here in what we're looking at now on the seven hills in verse 9. All three places are to be understood symbolically. And again, this is how we've taken this approach. So the seven heads then, as the angel tells John, represent seven mountains in verse 9, and then in verse 10, and they also represent seven kings. So again, we need wisdom. What in the world does this mean? Now, we noted that the prostitute was initially seated on the many waters. We looked at that. We peeked down to the end of the chapter where that explanation is given. The many waters represent the peoples, the nations of the earth. And then later on, uh, we saw her seated on the beast. Now we see her seated on the mountains. And the picture here is that she is pervasive. She is worldwide. Her impact is worldwide, not just over all nations. But here on the mountains, she is sitting upon those or influencing those directly and I would say uniquely. And we're going to see in a minute the mountains represent powers or kingdoms. And so while she, her power in, uh, pervades the whole world, it is uniquely and directly impacting those who are ruling in power. Now, as we've seen with other prophetic symbols, they often have dual meanings, meaning that they speak to an immediate context, and then they also point further down the road. And when you're in that immediate context, uh, whoever the writer is didn't always get the privilege of seeing further down the road. But the privilege that we have in in Scripture is that we get to kind of zoom out from 30,000 feet, so we get to see both the immediate context and the fulfillment uh, later on. Messianic Psalms are an example of this, right? If you think, we don't have time to look at it, but Psalm 22 speaks of David's experience. I mean, he's writing in his own experience. And yet when we read that, we see how under supervision of the Holy Spirit, David is speaking prophetically of what Christ experienced on the cross. It's both the immediate context and speaking of a fulfillment that would come down the road. And so in many ways, the image of the seven mountains does the same thing here. I do think it's hard not to say that this is not, this is not pointing to Rome. Rome was known as a city on seven hills. Now, there are those who say it adamantly is Rome and only Rome. There are others who say, no, it can't be Rome because it's seven hills and this is seven mountains and there's a difference. And I think it's both. I think it is Rome. But I think it's Rome and what Rome represents in the same way it is Babylon and what Babylon represents. The, the spirit of Rome that is the ruling powers that is present even in our day, even though Rome is nothing more than a tourist experience now, the spirit of Rome is still present, and that is what this is speaking to. This is seen in how the seven heads also point to the seven kings. John's, or the angel tells John they're both seven heads in verse nine, or seven um, and seven kings in verse ten. It's also too important for us to rem- remember. We've looked at this before, but mountains in Old Testament prophecy uh, often represented kingdoms, and we saw that in Jeremiah fifty-one. We've looked at that verse before. So the beast here that is being portrayed as representing rulers and powers in verse 13 
is, is that, that, that's what's being portrayed in this image. Seven, of course, is the number of completeness or a number of comprehension or comprehensiveness. And so what is, what is being described here is a worldwide power, a worldwide power through kingdoms and rulers. Douglas Kelly says, they seek to replace God with itself and to create its own values, speaking of this power, to create its own values instead of getting them from the word of God. That is the spirit of the beast. A famous German philosopher named Hegel actually said, the state is God walking on earth. The philosopher of communism, Karl Marx, said that religion is the opiate of the people. He held that people need to get rid of religion so as to replace God and the church with an all-powerful centralized state. Then everything will be so wonderful that you will not even need a state. Everything will be a humanistic paradise. And we don't have to look very long and hard to see how that works out. The beast represents the system of the kingdoms to the rulers. Verse 11 describes the beast as an eighth king to come. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And so the seven completeness rulers throughout time, godless rulers throughout history, the eighth, the antichrist, the beast, comes in the same thread, comes in the same system. Um, whether the Antichrist is an individual or as some kind of entity, uh, it, it, it comes in the same spirit of these godless rulers. So again, you have five kings who are described as having fallen, one who is and one who has yet to come but remains only a little while. So this is describing the nearness of the end. Now for us, we read this and think, nearness, that was 2,000 years ago. Let let me remind you that to the Lord a thousand days is as or a year is as a thousand thousand years is as a day uh, to the Lord, and so this is not so much about our sense of quickness or our sense of time, but a sense of expectancy that no one knows the day of His return, and so Revelation then is painting this picture of kingdoms coming and going, and this will continue to the end. This pattern will continue to the end. And I think history shows us this, that we see this as we look backwards. We don't know when it will finally come, but the beast will continue this pattern until he is judged. Now the ten horns that we see in verse 12, they will gain authority for only one hour. This is that end component. This is that great intensity, that final battle just before the end. Now something I hadn't noticed before, but I I, I looked it up, and uh, confirmed this week that the number 10 in Revelation is only used to describe the work of Satan. And I think that's very interesting. The tribulation is described as 10 days in chapter 2, verse 10. The dragon has 10 horns in chapter 12, verse 3. The beast has 10 horns and 10 crowns in chapter 13. And here in chapter 17, we see the scarlet beast with 10 horns as well. So as the eighth king then, the Antichrist, who was pictured before, appears on the scene, he or it will employ what is pictured here as the ten kings. This comprehensive final assault, the number ten. This is what will come at the end. Now we've already seen this in the book of Revelation. This isn't new information here. We saw this as the beast coming out of the abyss In chapter 11, verse 7, we saw this as the beast coming out of the sea in chapter 13. The portrayal of the kings coming together to fight on the great day of the Lord in chapter 16. And we'll see other images of it as we get into chapters 19 and 20. 
And so much like the parallelism that we saw in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we're getting, in a sense, different camera angles on the end, this last time event. It's portrayed in different symbols to help us understand and have a fuller picture. Here, the ten kings are pictured together with one mind, verse 13 tells us, and their intent is to make war on the Lamb, uh, verse 14. So then all of this begins to make sense, because it's exactly what we've seen described in these other passages I I mentioned. And yet here is where John takes the opportunity, as has been his pattern throughout the book of Revelation, to throw in these little nuggets of encouragement. Here he says, and the Lamb will conquer them. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. This is the message, really, of the book of Revelation. It's the conquering of the Lamb. It is the, that's that, that's the, the overall message. Jesus will win. He will conquer. No matter what we see unfold, no matter how much evil we see in our world, no matter what footholds Satan seems to establish, He will meet certain demise, utter defeat. This is the message of assurance that John wants his readers to have. Don't waver in this. No matter what you see, no matter what you think, no matter what you experience, the Lamb will conquer. And the reason for this is given, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. His absolute power and His sovereignty ensure His triumph. Because of who He is, we can be sure He will accomplish what He has promised to do. Nothing in heaven or in earth or in all existence will be able to thwart his plan or to stop his absolute victory. And then at the end, John includes us in the picture with the Lamb. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Believers are hereby pictured as victorious because we're with our Lord. It is the Lamb who has overcome. Remember that we, we, we saw that, right? Uh, I can't remember what chapter that is. But, but all through the letters, the, the encouragement is to conquer or to overcome. And then they're told later in the book of Revelation, it's the Lamb who's overcome. That's how we overcome. So it's not our doing. And here's that picture. We're with the conquering Lamb because of what He's done. He has achieved victory. This is not about us doing things, but about us trusting in the One who has done everything. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, verse 30. Because we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, our calling is sure. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he had blessed us in the beloved Ephesians 1. Because of this great love with which he has shown us, we then respond in faithful devotion. This is what Paul is praying for in the opening words of Colossians when he says, We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the result of our having been chosen and thus called, is that we bear fruit, that we walk producing fruit. This is why... We have been given His Spirit. In the final four verses then, John describes the explanation, much of which we've already looked at that the angel provided about the beast and the prostitute. But one thing that we haven't looked at is how 
he explains that Satan's kingdom will crumble by it turning in on itself. That those who join with the Antichrist in the end will turn together against the prostitute in hatred. They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And yet, even in this turning in on itself, we see the power is not in the hands of the dragon, but is in God's hands. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Greg Beale writes this, Here the unexpected fulfillment is the apparently victorious kingdom of evil unknowingly beginning to self-destruct by battling against itself and destroying its own economic religious infrastructure. Only an initiative from God could cause them to commit such a nearsighted and foolish act. At the end of history, God will cause Satan to be divided and fight against himself so that he will be brought to his final defeat. And this echoes what we read in Romans 1. How the judgment of God is already being revealed. The wrath of God is already being revealed by God turning man over to his sins. And this is how the end will come. Jesus said in Mark 3.26, And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Speaking truthfully and prophetically of what would come in the end. This is what it will look like. Here's what we need to take away from the passage. First, God's sovereign rule over all matters will ensure the absolute defeat of Satan and his kingdom. I told Leslie this week that I'm, I feel like I'm saying the same thing every week, and I am. I am. I know I am. I'm not going to try and get creative and, and look up a bunch of synonyms or uh, look for some secret hidden thing that I haven't thought of or no one else has thought of. This is what we see and it's what we need to hear, frankly. Because as we've talked about over and over again, the moment we walk out these doors, it's so easy to hear right now, but the moment we walk out these doors, we're inundated with the opposite. We're inundated with, with the lies, with the manipulation, with the desire that Satan has for us to worship other gods, other idols, with the persecution, with the suffering, with the pain of living in this fallen and broken world. We need to hear this over and over again so that even when we see the evidence that Satan has a foothold, we should not be filled with worry or with dread because he, we know that he will be judged. This hope should empower us to endure to the end with our confidence rooted in the fact that the Lamb has overcome. The Lamb will conquer. That's where our hope is. We need to consider our own hearts in these matters. For you who have yet to believe, this announcement of judgment again serves as a gracious warning and a call to trust in the Lamb. No power in this world can save you be it the seeming approval of man or any rules or powers that are initiated by a culture that says this can save you, that can save you. You cannot save you. Not your good works, not your good intentions. Fall on the mercy of Christ and find not only forgiveness of your sins, but victory over the power and the penalty of sin in this life and in the life to come, relief from the presence of sin forever. For you who are resting in Christ's finished work, hold on, hold on, hold on to Jesus. Some of you 
that doesn't sound like much. Others of you probably want to cry <laughs> because you're at a point in your life where that's all you have. We've all, we, 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 I shouldn't say we've all been there. I don't know what everybody's been through. But I know many of you are there or will be there where you come to the place where Jesus is all you have. Hold on. Look to Him when you suffer. Look to Him when you question and wonder about the pains that you face in this life. Look to Him and trust Him when you doubt and when you're discouraged when life doesn't make sense. Hold on to the Lamb who proved His love for you and that He laid down His life so that you can live. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to hold fast? Would you help us to persevere? Would you help us not to hold to things that we shouldn't hold? Not to put our confidence in things in this world that we think will maybe not save us, but maybe just give us a little bit of relief. If those things aren't you, Lord, would you, would you help us to, to let go? To not grasp for things that aren't you. Help us to hold onto you. And Lord, remind us and give us confidence that even when we fail in this, and even when we grasp for things that we shouldn't grasp, that you hold us. That you will never let us go. That nothing in heaven or in earth or in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to pluck us from your hands. Help us to know that. Strengthen our faith that we may walk in a way that bears fruit living lives that are pleasing to you, helping others to see the great hope that we have. And help us to persevere, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.